Great to see you all here this morning. Good to be home. And I wanted to share these two video recaps with you this morning for this reason. Over the past 21 days, we, and I mean we, have had the opportunity to preach to thousands of people, to share the hope that Jesus is coming again to hundreds of thousands of people, being his channel, and we have seen hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus Christ because of this church and your willingness to serve and your financial support has provided us these opportunities. And let me just add this, to God be the glory, great things he has done. And thank you to all who prayed while Amir and I were in the Philippines and were greeted by a volcanic eruption uh, to welcome us. And then those who served and prayed yesterday at proximity, it was just a monumental day. One of the interesting things, we uh, are blessed to have his channel broadcast the whole day uh, live uh, through, obviously, the Internet television. And it's a bit of an anomaly every single year, and it's exclusive only to the proximity conference, and that is the audience grows as the day progresses. Now, that's strange because even the Super Bowl loses viewers the longer the game goes on, but every year the proximity conference grows and grows and grows because people are telling others, hey, get online, see what God is doing and saying to his church today. So thank you all who serve. Thank you all who support the efforts to get the good news that Jesus is coming again out to the whole world. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people watching online yesterday. And those of you who happened to watch, Amir announced, and uh, he and I had been talking throughout the morning, and I think he posted something on social media. By the time he got up to preach, he had been awake for 23 hours and 46 minutes. He hadn't been able to get back to sleep. And I haven't heard from him today, so I hope he's getting two days sleep in one. And uh, so be praying for him. By the way, he and I are going to be doing a Middle East update and also talking about the rapid spread of the coronavirus here this afternoon at 3 p.m. I'll meet him at his hotel and we'll do a live Behold Israel uh, update if you'd like to tune in for that. So with all that said, are you ready this morning? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Acts 23, we'll look at verses 16 to 35. We'll break it down into our usual three sections. Now, last time we titled our time, The End is Near. And it really had kind of a trifold meaning, so to speak. And that is the end of Paul's life was drawing near as he would die within four years of our text. The end of the age of the temple for the Jews was coming near to an end, and we also noted that the end of the church age for us uh, is now at hand. And due to the shortness of time, we made three observations last time we were together. And the first was the time to quit serving the Lord on earth is when you arrive in heaven. We always serve, we always work for the Lord's namesake and glory until he takes us home, and hopefully we won't be working much longer. Amen? Amen? I opened the conference yesterday and told the group that I hope that this year's conference is the last. Because next year we won't be talking about how soon the Lord could be coming. We'll be talking about how awesome it was that he did. 
Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? And we also noted that the enemy can plot and plan, but he cannot prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail against God's church. And thirdly, we made the observation that God's peace does not require the absence of problems. We can have a peace that guards our heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And that's something that is exclusive to those who have faith in Christ the Lord. Now, historically, in Daniel 9.25, when the wall, building of the wall around Jerusalem was predicted, Daniel said, by inspiration of the Spirit, it would happen in troublesome times. And a quick read through the early chapters of Nehemiah will tell you that that is exactly what happened. Nehemiah and company rebuilt the wall in record time in troublesome times. And therefore, we cannot allow troublesome times that we live in, even today, to hinder us from serving the Lord and building his kingdom for his namesake and glory. In our text, Paul arrived in Jerusalem finally through troublesome times. He went into Jerusalem. He was indeed arrested. His presence created a riot. He was then bound with leather thongs, prepared for scourging and about to have an answer beaten out of him. And yet we noted that Paul took advantage of his Roman citizenship when he asked the centurion by him, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? In other words, it is against Roman law for you to beat me when I have not even had a trial. Now, this secured Paul's release, both from the leather straps that bound him, but it didn't end the efforts to kill him. Just to bring us back up to speed, where we are in our text, the verses preceding ours this morning, said in verses 11 through 15, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the morning after this, Paul, or the evening before, I should say, Paul was told to be of good cheer. The next morning, his enemies make a vow against him to kill him. Now, they didn't kill Paul, obviously. He lived for another four years. But it's also interesting, we don't read of their death either. We'll talk more about that in a couple of moments. But Paul's citizenship is going to come into play again in our verses this morning. And again, it will be to his advantage that it is mentioned But we're going to see also the very practical means by which the Lord secured Paul's safety and thus fulfilled the promise in coming chapters that he would testify of Jesus in Rome. Now, the interesting thing about our chapter this morning are our verses about God fulfilling this promise of protection and Paul's arrival in Rome is the means by which God kept his promise, which brings us and explains it through our title. And our title this morning is a bit unusual, and it's got a lot of syllables, but only two words. Our title this morning is Extraordinarily Ordinary. The means that God is going to cause Paul to arrive in Rome is extraordinarily ordinary. Now, the Lord promised that he would protect him and that he would bear witness of Jesus in Rome. And yet there's a group that has taken a vow neither to eat or drink until Paul is dead. 
Now, thinking about that, in my mind, this is time for a Red Sea parting type of miracle or a class five miracle, if you will. This is time for shutting the mouths of lions, standing the Jordan River up in a heap, classification of miracle. Or at the very least, we would be expecting to read what happened in Acts 5, 17 to 20, when the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, that's the kind of thing I would expect to happen with Paul being threatened and uh, his life really in peril. But the means by which the Lord protects Paul is extraordinarily ordinary, as we're going to see. Now, this gives us a couple of opportunities this morning. The first thing that we need to make mention of is that as Christians, we are family. Amen. Amen. We are family and we are family by blood. We're not family by our blood. We're family by the blood of Jesus shed for our sin. And therefore, as family, we need to be watching out for one another. The second thing we're going to take note of this morning, Paul introduced at the end of a series of qualifications for those who desire the office of a bishop or a pastor, where he said, moreover, in 1 Timothy 3, 7, he must have a good testimony among those who are where? Outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, Paul is simply saying, listen, if you're going to be a bishop or a pastor, you need to have among the other qualifications a testimony amongst a good testimony amongst the non, on non-believers. I'm sorry, I took Nyquil last night. And I'm just uh, waking up, or I'll wake up by the end of the service probably. Now, in Paul's list of qualifications, he lists a set of things that aren't specific to the pastor, but they are a level of spiritual maturity that one who desires the office of a bishop must have a, at least uh, attained to or things. These things ought to be accomplished in their life. Now, the fact is, the things that he puts on the list are things that are specific to us all. There are things we all ought to do. We all ought to have a good testimony amongst non-believers. Amen? Now, in our text this morning, it's true that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. But sometimes God moves through extraordinarily ordinary ways and means. And we'll see what that Uh, means to us today as we examine our verses this morning. So let's start in Acts chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. So would you stand and read with me, please, our opening verses for the day, Acts 23. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 16 and read down to 22 for our first section. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him, 
And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And Lord, we thank you that you do indeed reveal things to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you, Lord, that our gathering today is going to be beneficial to us, for it is the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And Lord, not only would you do that today, but I ask that you increase our burden for the lost and perishing around us, that we might have a heart for them to be saved. Lord, do all these things, we pray. And we pray them through the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people agreed by saying, Amen. You may be seated. Now, interestingly, out of nowhere, we have Paul's sister and nephew who march into the pages of Scripture and they exit just as quickly. Now, we don't know anything about them. We don't know how Paul's nephew could gain access to the imprisoned Paul. We don't know how the or why the garrison commander would give him an audience with him. We don't know why he'd listen to him. We don't know why he would believe him. We just know that Paul's family was part of how the Lord was going to assure Paul's arrival in Rome and protect him from the ambush of the 40-plus men who had vowed to kill him. And we can also see that Paul was respected by those who are on the outside, the prison guards. He had a good reputation among them. As he tells the centurion what to do, remember the centurion means the captain of a hundred men, and this man who had others under his charge, Paul tells him what to do, and he instantly does it. He takes Paul's nephew to the commander of the Antonio Fortress, or the garrison, and he says, Paul told me to bring him to you, so I did. And the commander doesn't say, who does this prisoner think he is, bringing, uh, telling you what to do and bringing his nephew to me? But instead, he takes the nephew by the hand. He inquires of what it is that Paul wanted him to know through him. And the nephew tells of the plot. And the commander says, keep this quiet and don't let anyone else know. Kind of like the uh, mantra during World War II, loose lips sink ships. He was just telling him, hey, don't tell anybody else because who knows who is involved on this. Nothing spectacular there, right? Just people communicating to people, one of them being a member of Paul's family. I couldn't help but think in all this about the words of Jesus and our responsibility to be light to an ever-darkening world. Remember, Jesus said in the opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14 and 16, having given his followers the Beatitudes, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Now, being a light on a hill represents our having an impact on our community, our sphere and circle of influence, and us being light to those around us. The light on a lampstand represents how we impact our home and how we live within the walls of our own households and how we influence those, as Paul clearly did, his own nephew here. Now, Paul obviously was both. He impacted those around him and he impacted his own family through his commitment to being a light for Christ. Now, Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I lost everything. And the implication is he even lost his family relationships. He, like all the Jews who became 
followers of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth were ostracized by their own family and the businesses within the city for their conversion. But for some reason, his nephew continued in the relationship and even cared about Paul's well-being. And I believe the Lord allowed him to discover this plot that by natural means, even though there was a supernatural source behind it, Paul would be protected and and could uh, in the future arrive in Rome. Now, a lesson for you and I from the words of Jesus in Mark 3, 31 to 35 We're told about a scene where his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he, Jesus, answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, they are my family. Notice he didn't include his father, because his father sits on high and he is the king of the universe. Amen? Amen. Now, listen, we are the family of God as followers of Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying to the multitude sitting around him, that our common bond is the fact that we know him, that we follow him, and his shed blood for our sins makes us family, and thus we are to do the will of God. So through the extraordinarily ordinary means, the plot of an enemy is revealed and the bond of Christ that we all share is the motivating factor behind the actions of Paul's nephew. Now, this brings us to the first thing that we've already really stated, but put now in summary form that I want you to consider about the extraordinarily ordinary events that happen in our lives. And it's simply this. Listen, God often works supernaturally through natural means. God often works supernaturally through natural means. Now, that may seem like an oxymoronic or contradictory statement, but the truth is, is that the continued relationship between Paul and his nephew was used to reveal a satanic plot against Paul's life. So when God reveals something, no matter how it was revealed, no matter who was used to communicate what has been revealed, there has been a supernatural occurrence just because God is involved. Now, it may not be a parting of the Red Sea. It may not be Jordan water standing up in a heap during flood season. It may not be a a lion's den experience like Daniel had, but it's no less supernatural than any of those things. Now, thinking back and as an example to uh, Nehemiah and his day, since we already mentioned him, Nehemiah 4, 6 tells us, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its heights for the people had a mind to work. Hang on to that for a minute. And then in Nehemiah 6, 15 to 16, we're told, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it And all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by who? Done by our God. Who had a mind to work? The people had a mind to work. Who got credit for the work? God got credit for the work. And nowhere in Nehemiah do we read that the people woke up one morning and the wall was halfway built. We don't read that the people woke up one morning and all the stones were laid out in assembly order. We don't read any of those things. We read the people were doing the work and God got the glory for it. And friends, that's what it's all about. That's what serving God is all about. And one more thing from Nehemiah and we'll move on. 
In Nehemiah 4, 11 to 13, remember the troublesome times in which the wall would be built? And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come in their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, Nehemiah speaking, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their what? Their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. This is supernatural wisdom. Nehemiah realized, I believe the Lord directed him to place the workers and the defenders according to their families because nobody fights for family like family. We are family. We need to have each other's back. We need to be supporting one another, not stabbing each other in the back. Somebody say, Amen. Now, let's look at 23 to 30. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, angels of every order, magnificent creatures from heaven. No, doesn't say any of that, does it? To go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to set on. And bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote in a letter the following, in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted him, wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. 470 Roman soldiers commissioned to escort Paul on the 60-plus mile journey to Caesarea Maritima, where the procurator Felix would hear Paul's case. And this would certainly be a deterrent to those who were lying in ambush, who had taken a vow to kill Paul. But again, we read nothing of them dying from starvation or thirst, because the fact is their vow was empty, but the Lord's promise was not. In verse 25, Luke says that Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix in the following manner. And he packages his verbiage in that way because it doesn't necessarily mean Luke heard exactly what was said or read the letter. Because it could simply mean that he was giving the gist of the content from what he heard. But it is possible that the letter was read aloud when Paul was brought before Felix. And he was actually taking dictation and quoting verbatim. However, either way, Claudius, if you note, takes some liberties in his letter because he first says, You know, I found out Paul was a Roman citizen, so me and my men came in and rescued him from those who were trying to kill him. Well, that's not exactly how the story went down. Remember, he had tied Paul with leather straps. He was about to beat an answer out of Paul when Paul said, Hey, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen, and you know very well that this is against the law. And Claudius Lysias just happens to omit that part of the letter. And he goes on to say, these accusations that I found out were actually against the Jewish law, nothing to do with Roman law. So I sent him to you so his accusers could make their case in your presence. Now, why would he rearrange the facts, so to speak? And I, we have a coin that was termed with some of our 
politicians of late who have been caught, let's see, what's the word? Lying. They actually now have been recorded as misremembering the facts. And I think Claudius Lysias misremembered the facts of what actually had happened. Well, he certainly misstated them. Felix was procurator of Judea from 53 to 60 AD. Now, interesting, Felix, and he was kind of a cool cat. Come on. You, you knew that was coming. That had to get in here at some point. Felix the cat, obviously. But you know what? It's kind of bizarre because his name means happy, but he was anything but that. History tells us he was a cruel and corrupt ruler. And we'll read in the coming chapters that he kept Paul in prison for two years, hoping to extort money from Paul in an effort to buy his own freedom. Now, Felix began his life as a slave, but he had a very well-known and prominent brother who was uh, someone who Emperor Claudius held in great high esteem. And because of his brother Pallas, he became a freedman. And the historian Tacitus actually tells us of Felix that he thought he could commit any evil act with impunity. And Tacitus went on to say that he ruled with the power of a king, but the mind of a slave. He was very uh, cruel and retaliatory in his dealings with the Jews. Now, this is who Claudius Lysias sent Paul to, and it probably explains why he formulated the letter in the way he did. He himself had broken Roman law, even though he noted that Paul hadn't. And therefore, he was wanting to escape the consequences for his, for his own error. So he painted the story in a manner that uh, Felix would receive. And he, of course, begins his letter to the most excellent governor or procurator, Felix. Now, in Acts 9, 10 to 16, we're told about a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Remember, Paul was blind, Saul was blinded by the light on the Damascus road and couldn't see for a number of days, and then Ananias laid hands on him, something like scales fell off his eyes, and he was able to see again. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, who's next? Kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And much of what we just read is being fulfilled in our chapter and the ones beyond that we'll cover in the coming weeks. Now, here we see what the Lord told Ananias coming to pass, but not necessarily the way that it would be expected. Paul did arrive before Felix, who in a sense was a king, but he was arriving as a prisoner. But also unexpectedly, he was being escorted like he was the king. He had this military guard that was uh, traveling with him. Now, this reminds us of our next truth this morning is God uses extraordinarily ordinary people and things to accomplish his will. Here's something we don't often think about but need to remember. Listen this morning. God is not limited, limited to only using believers to accomplish his will. God is not limited to only using believers to accomplish his will. 
I mean, think about the scene that we've read before us. We have a Roman centurion. We have a Roman commander of a garrison who are being used to bring a Jew who represents the king of the Jews before a foretold experience that Paul would have with a pagan king. Now, think about this as it pertains to our point. In Isaiah 45, 1 to 6, we're told, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now keep that in mind, that pairing of descriptions here. The Lord says to his anointed, and then his anointed is named as Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel, for Jacob, my servant's sake and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have what? Not known me. I've named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will guard you, though you have not known me. Gird you, rather, though you have not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. 150 years before Cyrus was even born, God said, I'm going to anoint him to release the captives of Babylon and send them back to Jerusalem and enable them even to build the temple. Listen, our God is a sovereign God. And people will do as he directs them. Now, he doesn't violate our free will as it pertains to our salvation. You can choose to be for him or you can choose to be against him. But when he wants something done, he can have you do it whether you believe in him or not. He wrote down Cyrus' name by the prophet Isaiah 150 years before he was born. And he told Cyrus, I named you because I have a plan for you. And he even called Cyrus his anointed. And when, a, when Cyrus was born, 150 years later, he would return the items of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. He would write a decree concerning the Jews to all of his empire, where he said in Ezra 1, 1 to 4, now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of what? Persia. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Remember, Cyrus didn't know him, but the Lord stirred up his spirit. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in where? Jerusalem. Oh, that the leaders of the modern nation of Persia or Iran would recognize how God used Cyrus and how those who bless Israel will be blessed. Amen? 
Now, just as God used a pagan king of Persia to rebuild the temple, so too in our chapter, God used a centurion, 470 Roman soldiers, and an evil procurator to fulfill what God had promised to Paul. What does all this mean to us? Not anything. I just thought it was kind of cool. It means a lot to us. It means we need to have our eyes open to what God is doing all around us. God is always on the move. He is always working in our, on our behalf. He uses extraordinarily ordinary people and circumstances to bring about his supernatural will. It isn't always a notable miracle that we're going to see, like the lame man at the gate, beautiful, who was begging alms from Peter and John. Peter looked at him and said, I don't have any money, but what I do have, you're going to get in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise to your feet and walk. The man immediately received strength in his feet and ankles, and he stood up, began to walk and went his way, leaping and praising God. I like that kind of stuff, don't you? But... God uses extraordinarily ordinary circumstances as well. He even uses unbelieving people. And we need to acknowledge that it is the Lord who is working on our behalf. And he is not limited to using only believers. He is the sovereign God of all the earth. Now, Claudius Lysias told Felix that he sent Paul to him. But it was actually God who used Claudius Lysias to send Paul to him. Because we know from Proverbs 21, the heart of the king is in what? The hand of the Lord. Is that only believing kings? No, that's all kings. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes, as he did with Cyrus. Now, God is on the throne. He is sovereign over the affairs of all men. He is not limited to strictly using believers to accomplish his will. He will even use them in the life of believers through extraordinarily ordinary things. I couldn't help but think of the story of a woman, an elderly woman, who sat on her front porch every evening and sang praises to God and prayed to him aloud on her front porch, which aggravated her atheist neighbor to no end. Every night he would listen to her and he would grumble and growl. And he hated the fact that she would sit out publicly and praise the name of God, lift the name of Jesus on high in prayer. And finally, one evening, he hears her pray, Lord, you know, I have no money. You know, the cupboards are bare and you know, I don't have any means to obtain food and that tomorrow I will go hungry unless you do something. Lord, you know all these things, but I praise your name and give you glory because I know you are the Lord who provides. Well, the neighbor hears this prayer. He thinks, I got her now. So that night he ran out and he bought two bags of groceries and snuck out early in the morning and set those bags of groceries in front of her front door, rang the doorbell and went around the corner and hid behind the bushes to see her come out. She comes out, sees these two wonderful bags of groceries and says, thank you, Jesus. I know I knew you would provide. The atheist jumps out from behind the bushes. Jesus didn't provide those for you. I provided for those for you. Where's your God now? She says, oh, thank you, Lord. I knew you would take care of me. I just didn't know you'd have the devil buy my groceries. God can use anybody. Amen. Now, verses 31 to 35, and we'll wrap up our time together. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him uh, by night to Antipatris. 
The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, God at this point has used Paul's nephew. He's used a centurion. He's used the commander of the Antonio Fortress. He's used 200 soldiers, 70 Roman spearmen, and also 200 Roman, uh, or 70 horsemen and 200 Roman spearmen. And the Lord brings Paul to his next stop en route to his ultimate journey, where he would also meet his death in Rome. Now, the group arrives at Antipatris, a city that was actually uh, named by Herod the Great in honor of his father, Antipater, which was a little over halfway to their uh, desired destination, Caesarea Maritima. And they had about 25 miles left to go. But they also came geographically to a rather different setting. It was a flat place. There were no rocks to hide behind. And it was also uh, rather an ethnic adjustment in the population. Previous portion of the journey, the population was predominantly Jewish, and now they've come into a predominantly Gentile area, and thus both of these features, no place to hide, Gentiles, the main uh, portion of the populace, made an ambush very unlikely. So 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen returned, and 200 soldiers continued with Paul. And this downsized group then arrives in Caesarea. They present the letter and Paul to Felix, who asks Paul where he's from. Paul says, Cilicia. Felix says, well, hear the case, and he commands Paul to be kept in the praetorium. Praetorium is simply somewhere within the palace grounds. Now, we know in about five days, false testimony is going to begin when Ananias, the high priest, arrives to bring his accusations against Paul. And Paul, being housed on the palace grounds, would therefore be somewhere near the judgment hall where cases like this would be heard. I was thinking about this and all that Paul had experienced and all that we're going to see he experiences in coming chapters that we can almost replay this scene in our minds. And I'm sure anybody who has watched a Western has seen a scene where there's someone who is held in the jail and it's a one cell, one cell jail. And there's a marshal or a sheriff who is watching over the prisoner who has been caught, tried and condemned to hang. And often there's a scene replayed where the prisoner is looking out the window watching the gallows be built and hearing the hammer blows, seeing the henchman throw the rope over the top. And, you know, obviously he is considering his death as soon as the sun is up the next day. And we could look at this scene almost like that, that Paul is facing his death if it wasn't for one thing. And we already read it. In Acts 23, 10 to 11, we're told about the great dissension that arose. The commander, fearing that Paul would be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him, Paul, by force from among them, bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at... Well, Paul was in Caesarea Maritima. Where was he going? He was going to Rome. Who could stop it? Nobody. The Lord said, Paul, you're going to bear witness uh, of me in Rome. And that means that Paul was going to bear witness of the Lord in Rome. No one could stop it. Let him build the gallows outside. Let him threaten him. Let the courthouse be in view of wherever Paul was staying. Forty men who had taken a vow couldn't keep Paul from Rome. Nor could a Roman commander, not evil Felix, not Festus who succeeded him. 
not Ananias who hated him, the high priest, or even later King Agrippa, who after listening to Paul's testimony said, Paul, much learning has made you crazy. But then Paul kept talking. And then Agrippa would later say, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now listen, if God was defending Paul in this manner, it's true for you and me as well. For we are as much God's children as the apostle Paul, Peter, or any of the other apostles or great men and women throughout the course of history. Now for our last point, I want to flip the script a little bit and turn our title around and remind us that we are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. He can use ordinary people and circumstances to do extraordinary things. He is not limited by whether one is his follower or not. He can name kings 150 years in advance whom he will use to bless and benefit his people. He can and does bring enemy plots to nothing like that of the 40 plus assassins who sought and vowed to kill Paul. So here's our final takeaway as we consider our extraordinary God interacting with and using ordinary people like you and me. Listen this morning. You ready? The extraordinary is an ordinary part of life for God's people. The extraordinary is an ordinary part of life for God's people. And sometimes the extraordinary looks kind of ordinary. Like God using family members or even non-believers along the road of life to accomplish His will for you and I. Other times our ordinary life experiences clash with the extraordinary in ways that are undeniably the hand of God. Thinking about Acts 12, 5 through 11, where Peter had been kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church or his family. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. You can see how worried Peter was. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, An angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself or tie up your robe, uh, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter thought he was dreaming all this. Now, when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself or when Peter snapped out of it, and realized this was no dream. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You know, people often read stories like that and they say, oh, come on. Do you really believe that stuff? You bet I do. Because if you don't believe God can do something as simple as opening a gate, there's no way you're going to believe he spoke all that there is into existence. God can do anything. And listen, if your God can't do anything, then he's not God. Because God means, by definition, the supreme being. That means he is a higher authority and therefore there can only be one God. And it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is all-powerful, and he has all authority. Now, I don't know why nobody said amen there, but I think I'll pause for a moment. Now, think about what we just read. When all the extraordinary things were done, 
Peter looked back and then came to the conclusion, now I know this was the Lord. This is a healthy practice. You know, sometimes we have to look back to see things that we may have deemed ordinary at the moment, but see there were extraordinary elements of it. God was at work through those things. And even the natural things, or what some would deem to be a coincidence, were actually supernaturally orchestrated because that's the business God is in. You know, as I was preparing for this morning and going over uh, my notes or Actually, I worked on this uh, a few days ago, but then again, revisited in the morning. I was thinking about uh, the little video clip you saw. As uh, Amir and I were sitting in the front row at the conference in Davao, and the practice of the Filipino people is that I would teach, and then Amir would teach, and then Amir would teach, and I would teach. But whatever the setting was, whatever the venue was, a Filipino, a local pastor, would get up and give the invitation. And at one point, we saw a couple hundred young people come to faith in Christ, We saw in all these different scenarios and situations, people come to the Lord through the very wonderful invitations given by these Filipino pastors. And we were sitting in Davao at this uh, prophecy conference filled with 2,500 Filipinos giving praise to Jesus. And then this pastor, after Amir and I both taught, give this invitation and you saw a little clip of it. And all these people were standing right in front of Amir and I who are sitting a chair apart on the front row. And as we saw this, both of us got hit at the same time with the emotion of the moment. He looked at me and I looked at him. And I know we were both feeling and sensing and thinking the same thing. And then Amir said to me, what a privilege God has blessed us with. What a privilege God has blessed us with. And, you know, I thought as I prepared for today, how God had orchestrated all these things. You know, up until two and a half years ago, Amir and I, had only met once. He and Pastor Jack Hibbs were a guest of mine on World News Briefing one time, and I hadn't talked to him or seen him since that time, well over a year. And then I got a phone call from somebody that I've known for 30 years, normal, ordinary circumstance. Hey, haven't talked to you in a while, dear friend of mine, fellow pastor, had a long-term relationship. He was pastoring in Cincinnati. He says, hey, watch you on World News Briefing all the time. How about you come to Cincinnati and hold a prophecy conference. Longtime friend, ordinary circumstance, not an unusual request. I said, sure, would love to, Rick, would love to come out to Cincinnati and join you for that. Well, as time went on, unbeknownst to me, he tells me a couple of weeks before the conference, he said, oh, by the way, Amir Sarfati is going to be the other speaker. I said, well, I'm okay with that. So, interestingly... Since that conference two and a half years ago, the very first time that he and I ministered together, we have ministered all over the world together. We have preached the gospel to people in different parts of the globe together. And we'll do so again this year and just did last week. And since that Cincinnati conference, through very ordinary circumstances, a Messianic Jew from Israel, a Gentile from California, who preached together for the first time in Cincinnati, We're sitting on the front row a week ago Saturday in Davao, Philippines, on the island of Mindanao, watching people come forward and commit their lives to Jesus Christ in response to the messages we had the the privilege to preach. Listen, there's only one word to describe that. That's extraordinary. That's God. But while I hadn't talked to my friend in a while, that's exactly when you would expect to talk to somebody. There was nothing extraordinary about getting a call from a longtime friend in Cincinnati. 
There was nothing extraordinary about being asked to teach at a pastor's conference. There was nothing extraordinary or supernatural, at least it seemed, to having Amir Sarfani there because he does the same thing. He preaches at prophecy conferences. But then the extraordinary began to manifest itself through very ordinary things that would happen in anybody's life. Mine, yours, or anyone else who wants to serve the Lord. But listen, sometimes you got to look back to see it. Sometimes you got to look back and say, I had no clue when that was going on. As a matter of fact, I was kind of thinking he wasn't watching out for me anymore. I was kind of feeling like, where are you? How come I'm facing this circumstance on my own? But God had been on the move all along. It's sometimes like Peter. We have to look back to see and realize the supernatural, that God has been working. Listen, the fact that you're here today tells you that God took care of you all night because the devil wanted to kill you. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Listen, he comes to do that to Christians. The fact is, God, who is extraordinary, can orchestrate a king's escort for a prisoner when that prisoner is his child. That's how God moves. Think about this. God said, Paul, you're going to Rome. Some said, we're going to kill him. God said, you know what? I'm going to provide him an escort that these puny non-military people are going to be so fearful of they won't even attempt the assassination. That's how God works. You might not see it when you're in it, but when it's over, you know it was him. And therefore we remember Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will, what's the next word? Never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly speak say in response to that divine promise, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can 40 plus assassins do to me or anything else for that matter? Listen, the Lord is your helper today too. He's my helper today. So there's no need to fear. No man can stop the Lord's will. And our text today is further proof. We serve an extraordinary God who makes ordinary sinners his family members by the blood of Jesus every single day. Listen, I can't even tell you the number of times I've heard people ask, where are the gospel age book of Acts type miracles today? Listen, they're happening all around us. They happen every day. Maybe you're wondering, you know, I've never seen anybody at the gate beautiful leap and praise God after being lame. I've never seen the blind have their eyes open. I've never seen a leopard cleanse. I've never seen any of those things that we read in the Gospels or the book of Acts. Well, let me tell you something. You have seen something that Jesus said. Say Jesus said. That Jesus said is far greater. What you and I have seen is dead people being made alive by the blood of Jesus Christ. People coming to faith and having their eternal destiny changed. That's what Jesus is talking about. He said, when I go to the Father, I will send you a helper who is equal to me. And he's going to not only teach you all things, he's going to empower you and call to remembrance the very words that I have spoken to you. And greater works than the things you've seen me do will you do because I go to my Father. What could be greater than healing a dead person who will die later? Healing a spiritually dead person who will live forever. That's a greater work. That's what God is doing today. Don't say God's not doing miracles. You're a miracle. You were dead. He made you alive in Christ. 
You were rotting in your sin. You were headed for hell. He forgave your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin so you could live forever with him. God is in the miracle business today. And we cannot limit him to temporal miracles because eternal miracles are of far greater value. And they are his greater concern. Listen, God changing people from being eternally corrupt to eternally incorruptible and immortal is something that he alone has the capacity to do and he alone is responsible for every rescued soul. And I have to say, that's extraordinary. That is our God. And Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. Thank you that you are who you are and that you do what you do and that you do not change and all of your people experience these great blessings. We thank you today that you are unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance or the change of mind about the person of Christ and their understanding of his Father in heaven, that they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ and Savior and Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you haven't given up on man, even though many have given up on you. We thank you, Lord, you're still doing the extraordinary. And sometimes it looks pretty ordinary, but we thank you we can look back and see your hand at work, guiding and directing, opening doors, allowing us to walk freely, healing us and freeing us from past habits and sins that were killing us and displeasing to you. So, Lord, for that, we're grateful this morning. We pray, God, that as a result of our time, we would leave this place with a greater confidence, knowing that you haven't left us, nor will you ever. And that you are a God who does the miraculous and what man deems impossible as an everyday occurrence. The extraordinary is a normal part of life for we ordinary people. We thank you, God, for this opportunity this morning. We thank you for what you did over these past two weeks. We thank you for the new saints in the Philippines. We thank you for your body that was equipped and challenged yesterday at proximity. We thank you for the multitudes of people that watched online through his channel in our streaming ways. And Father, we are grateful for all these things, but our hope, our desire above recognizing the magnificent magnitude of these things is that you receive glory, that the name of Jesus was exalted. So we thank you for including CCT and what you're doing literally around the world. And may you receive glory at home and in our communities as people see the good works we do for your name's sake and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. We thank you for our time and your matchless word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, once again, I have to thank all of you who served yesterday. It's so good to see, and and, uh, Officer Mike, who often sits down here with me in the front row, was telling me another thing that is a reminder of what we just talked about today. And that is, you know, we had a tremendous security team. I mean, you got a Messianic Jew from Israel. you got Jack Gibbs, who is heavily involved in uh, the Trump campaign and these other things that are going on. And uh, just Jan Markell, who is a voice that speaks to 830 radio stations around the nation. So we had a need for security. So our security guys and the security guys from East Anaheim, a lot of them off-duty officers, uh, got together to make sure everybody was safe. And indeed, we were for the whole of the day. And Mike told me this morning that they were talking, all these off-duty cops were talking last night, 
that, hey, man, that went really smooth. And Mike said, that's because we know Jesus. Because the truth is, when you get two police departments working at the same event, all they do is bicker about whose department is better. But there was none of that because all of them were saved by the same Savior, and therefore they could cooperate together. And the security team worked like a dream. Everything was like that yesterday. Pastor Bob Copany was just marvelous as he welcomed us at Calvary East Anaheim. All the things that happened behind the scenes that are unbeknownst and unseen. So many of you put your hands to. I'm so grateful for you because we really had just a marvelous chance to tell people about the most important thing that they need to hear. As I said on the video clip, Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when people do not expect Him. As Jan Markell often says, perhaps today. Amen? Would you all stand?